Happy Easter, everybody. Thank you. I, I just have to tell you how incredibly excited I am that you are joining us for this very special day of celebration. And listen, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or watching online, whether you're a regular churchgoer or you're just here today because it's Easter, either way, I just want you to know how incredibly thankful I am that you are here. Now, over the last several weeks here at Cedar Creek Church, we've been looking at Easter through the lens of defining moments. Not just the defining moments that were a part of that dramatic last week of Jesus' life, but we've actually been looking at Easter itself as a defining moment. It is certainly a defining moment in human history, right? I mean, think about it. Every other event in history dates itself in relationship to Easter, years before and years after. But we've also discovered that Easter is much more than just a defining event in human history. We've also discovered that it is the defining moment of our faith. Our Christian faith, the foundation of our faith, is not an ancient collection of writings. It's not a set of traditions passed down for centuries by the church. The foundation of our faith is not stories our parents told us to believe in when we were kids or the cultural narrative of where we were born. The foundation of our faith as Christians is an event. And it is the event we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus. Why do I say that? It's because without the resurrection, there is no Bible as we know it. There is no church to pass down traditions. There's no story that our parents know to tell us. That's why the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, in other words, if there is no resurrection, then all of our preaching is useless, and he says, your faith is useless. Why does he say that? Because without a resurrection, there's nothing worth putting our faith in. Without a resurrection, all there is is a 2,000-year-old story of a small group of first-century Jews who followed a carpenter-turned-rabbi who performed some miracles and told some really cool stories. And as a result, at some point, they believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah the Savior of the nation of Israel. And they believed it with everything they had until that Friday when they watched his broken, beaten, lifeless body taken off that cross and carried to a cave, a borrowed tomb, and placed in it, and the stone rolled over it, and their hope was lost. There's no movement to keep going. There's no reason to risk life and limb to pass the story and the message of Jesus down. You, you realize the 11 remaining disciples that were hiding behind those locked doors, they were not planning and scheming how to keep the movement alive, 
how to keep telling Jesus' stories and his message of the gospel. They were just trying to figure out how they could get out of the city alive, and they were going back to fishing and tax collecting and probably a lot of regrets of the three and a half years they had wasted. That's the story. But then came the morning that sealed the promise. His buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declares, the grave has no claim on me. That is Easter. And that's what we celebrate today. For me, it's really interesting when you look at the Easter narrative, one of the things that's easy to miss, I think one of the most amazing things about the resurrection is not just the impact it had on history or its importance to our faith, but what amazes me about the resurrection is how unexpected it was for Jesus' closest followers. Do you know that not one of Jesus' followers was expecting a resurrection. They weren't hiding behind locked doors waiting on Sunday morning to come. Even though Jesus had clearly told them multiple times that he would die and three days later he would come back to life. They missed it or didn't believe it. No one standing outside the tomb in the garden counting down 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Cue the sunrise. 4, 3, 2, 1. None of Jesus' followers are anticipating a resurrection. They're expecting Jesus to do what we expect dead people to do, and that is to stay dead. In fact, let me say this. If you are someone who who believes that Jesus was a historical person, and pretty much everybody believes that's true, And if you believe Jesus was a really good teacher who taught great life lessons and parables, and if you believe maybe even Jesus lived a life that is worthy of emulating, but you struggle with this idea of him dying and coming back to life, if that's you, guess what? You're in good company because Jesus' closest friends believe that. In fact, you can see that clearly in their behavior after Jesus' death. Take that small group of women who were followers of Jesus. Notice what they do after Jesus died. Mark chapter 16. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus what? His body, his dead body. That's what you do with a body. You are preparing it to be in the grave long term to minimize the effects of decomposure. And even when they looked in the tomb and saw it was empty, they didn't jump to resurrection. They assumed grave robbery, that somebody had taken the body. And in fact, when they go back into the city to tell the remaining 11 disciples that the tomb was empty, notice those men's response. Luke 24, it says, when they came back from the tomb, the women... They told all these things to the 11 and to all the others, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. My point is this, that these first century original followers of Jesus, 
They didn't risk their life. They didn't give their life and spend the rest of their life making sure the message of Jesus was passed on to future generations because Jesus told great great stories. They didn't do that because of the miracles they had seen. They did that because they had seen their friend die and then they had seen him come back to life. And it redefined their lives. And guess what? The resurrection of Jesus can still redefine your life today if you'll let it. That's why Peter, who was eyewitness to all of these things, would decades later sit down as an old man and dictate these words in a letter to first century Christians. First Peter 1.3. He says, in God's great mercy... He has caused us to be born again, our lives redefined into a living hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ told great parables? Because Jesus pulled off some miracles? No, because he rose from the dead. And it redefined their lives. The question is, will you allow it to redefine your life today? And so for the next few moments, I want to look in a very practical way at how the resurrection of Jesus can redefine our lives. Three ways. One, it can redefine my past and my present. The resurrection of Jesus redefines my past and my present. Most of us assume we are where we are in life because of where we've been, what we've done or not done, or what has been done to us by others. We assume that our past dictates our present. And isn't it interesting that almost every time we think about the past, we always think about the negative things in our past? Somehow the past has become a a word to describe the bad stuff, right? Like if I were to point out somebody to you and say, yeah, well, he has a past or she has a past. You would assume that either they struggled or made a lot of bad choices. But here's the truth. All of our pasts are a mixture of good things and bad things. Good decisions, bad decisions. Good things done for us and bad things done to us. And while those things are certainly a part of our life journey, and obviously they have an impact in our lives, they don't define our lives. Listen, I'm not minimizing the things you've been through. I'm not minimizing the pain and struggle you've been through. I'm just saying that because of the resurrection, your past doesn't determine your life. It's not what defines you. Your past is not the defining moment of who you are, but the resurrection of Jesus is. Notice what the Bible says, Colossians chapter 2. It says, you are were, past tense, you were dead because of your sins, because of your past, because of your failures. But then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all the sins, all the past. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. He was hung up for our hang-ups, so you don't have to keep getting hung up on your past. See, most of us try to deal with our past in one of a couple of ways. 
Somebody, some of us try to deal with our past by hiding it, painting on the smile, pushing it down, not telling anybody, hoping it will go away. Some of us try to deal with our past by minimizing it. It's not that big a deal what I've done or haven't done. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. And we try to minimize it through comparison. Some of us actually try to leverage our past for our own gain, to play the victim, to look at our past and use it as an excuse and want sympathy from others. Some of us try to deal with our past by working it off, by trying to do enough good things to cover up and pay for the bad things that we've done. But here's the problem with all of these ways of dealing with your past. It's still there. The only way to be free from your past is to give it to the one who has already paid for it. And when you do, he not only forgives you, but he uses your past for your good and his glory to redefine your life. The resurrection of Jesus redefines my past and my present, but it doesn't stop there. The second thing it does is redefine my view of God and suffering. The resurrection redefines my view of God and suffering. You know, one of the biggest barriers to faith in God is the existence of pain and suffering and evil in the world. If God is a good God and a powerful God, then how can pain and suffering and evil exist in the world? And how can it happen in my life? And let me tell you this, if, if you're one of those who has lost faith, because of the pain and suffering you see in the world around you, or the pain and suffering of your own experience, I would invite you to reconsider that decision. And the reason why is because the men and women who followed Jesus, the men and women who gave their lives to share this story, they saw pain and suffering daily on a scale that none of us could imagine. Many of them experienced pain and suffering in their own lives, and they chose to believe anyway. Why? Because their faith was not built on an imaginary God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Think about it. They saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person they'd ever known. But they also saw God moving and working in the darkness of Friday and Saturday and bringing hope and healing with the dawn of Sunday. Take Peter, for example. He not only saw his best friend suffer, he caused some of the pain of his friend's suffering. When he denied, he even knew him. But a few days later, he would sit and have coffee and breakfast on a beach with his resurrected friend and he would see his life and his relationship restored and it redefined his view of God and his view of pain and suffering. That's why a few years later, Peter would not write not only those words we've read about new life and a living hope, but he would share these words with us as well, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, Thou, though now for a little while 
you have may had to have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You catch that? Because Peter saw God use the pain and suffering of Jesus to restore his broken relationship with God. Peter could say with confidence that God will continue to use our pain and suffering to bring us to a closer, deeper, more intimate relationship, not with the imaginary God who doesn't let bad things happen to good people, but with the God who is with us and working in the pain and suffering. Look, the truth is, I don't know the struggles you're going through right now. I don't know the pain you're dealing with. I don't know the unanswered questions you have of God. I promise you I have a long list of why questions for God in my own life. But here's what I do know. Whatever our pain, whatever our unanswered questions, whatever our struggles are, I can promise you God is with you in it and he is using it for your good and his glory. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what he did that very first Easter. And then finally, number three, the third thing the resurrection redefines is my hope for the future. The resurrection redefines my hope for the future. There's a worship song we sometimes sing about the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's a line in that song that says, and as your blood fell to the ground, it redefined my future. It's a beautiful line, but what does it really mean? Well, listen again to Peter's words. Peter says, now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Two things I want you to notice. In fact, I want you to circle these on your outline. Circle the phrase, now we live, and circle the word inheritance. Two things Peter tells us about our hope for the future. The first thing he says is it starts now. It says, now we live with great expectation. We don't have to wait till we die to experience eternal life. If we're a Christ follower, our eternal life has already begun. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have come to give not just eternal life, but full and abundant, meaningful life right here, right now. The second thing Peter tells us about our future is that it is relational, not transactional. What do I mean by that? Well, Peter uses the word inheritance to describe our future. Who gets an inheritance? The children, right? An inheritance is not something you earn by performance. It's something you get on the basis of your relationship. And Peter says, that's where your future hope comes from. Not from what you've done or not done or how good of a person you are. So I think too many of us as Christians in the Western church, we have this idea of eternity 
as this resort that God provides. And if we work hard enough or religious enough, do enough good things, then we will punch our ticket and we will get to rest on a cloud in eternity in God's perfect resort where the angels will feed us grapes and fan us with palm leaves. But listen, our hope as Christians for the future is not just in the sky by and by when we die. Our hope for the future is God with us now and us with him for all eternity. And that is built on a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. This relationship where a perfect and holy God can be intimate with messed up, jacked up, sinful people like me comes to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jesus, in his final prayer for us, his followers, prays these words in John chapter 17. Jesus said, now this is eternal life. Not that they live forever in heaven, but that they know you, the only true God, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That word know in the Bible does not mean the same thing it means to us today. It doesn't mean knowledge about. It's not information about. It means intimacy with. It's the same word the Bible uses to describe the intimacy between a husband and a wife. To know God. That's the relationship that gives us the hope here and for all eternity. So let me ask you one final question. This Easter 2021. Do you have that? Do you have that real, intimate relationship with God through Jesus? Or do you just know the story? Do you just know the answer to the Bible quiz? If not, I can think of no better day than Easter Sunday to say yes and step into that relationship with Jesus. And so I want to give you that opportunity right now. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, all over all of our campuses, those of you who are watching online. If you're here today and you know you don't have that relationship, maybe you got religion, maybe you got certificates from the church about different religious hoops you've jumped through, but you don't have an intimate, daily, desperate relationship with Jesus, you don't need a magic formula. You don't need to follow some religious tradition. You just need to cry out to him. Like any other relationship, it always starts with transparency. Being honest with yourself and honest with him about who you are, where you've been, and what you've done. What the Bible calls sin. And the Bible says if we confess, if we're honest with God about it, he forgives us and he cleans us from all that junk. And then like any other relationship, you start to build trust. You start to trust in his word and his truth, not your own understanding or your own emotions. And you begin the journey of following him and experiencing the life, a life of hope and joy and peace in spite of the brokenness and pain around you and within you. Thank you, Jesus, that we celebrate more than a mythical story about a carpenter turned rabbi. 
we celebrate the truth of a resurrected Savior and the hope it brings. In Jesus' name, amen.